Welcome once again to Glam City. This is our second season and we are very excited to bring you 20 auditory backstage passes to Sydney's cultural institutions. Still don't know what glam means in Glam City? Well, it means galleries, libraries, archives, museums. And every week we lift the lid and take you behind the scenes to reveal the marvellous archivists, the curious curators and the purveyors of cultural heritage who are working in our cultural sector in Sydney. Now today it's just me, Tamsin Peach. Anna Clark has abandoned ship and gone to the Great National Roundabout in Canberra where she is beavering herself through some archives. So hopefully she will tell us a little bit about that when she gets back. But I am very happy to say that Shirlene Robinson is joining me today. Shirlene, hello. Hello. Shirlene is a historian and she is president of Sydney's Pride History Group. But you probably have heard her voice. If she sounds familiar, that is because she has been on all the airwaves and on all the media in the last year as the New South Wales spokesperson for the marriage equality campaign and of which she's a board member. So hello, Shirlene. How did you get interested in Pride History in the Pride History Group? Uh, Well, I moved to Sydney in the middle of 2011 and I'd been involved in a uh, sort of similar group, um, smaller group up there, which was uh, in Brisbane, which was associated with the Queensland AIDS Council, which has a a really big kind of community role uh, in Brisbane. And when I came to Sydney, sort of looking for something quite similar, uh, I knew Scott McKinnon, who was very involved with the group, and he persuaded me to uh, to come along to a meeting, and I've kept coming along to meetings ever since. In the best tradition of community groups. Yes. <laughs> Someone twists your arm. Yes, that's right. And keep, <laughs> keeps it sort of held behind your back for a while, so yeah. <laughs> so what does Pride History do? Well, I think what our main priority and the thing that we, we're probably most known for is our collection of oral histories. So we are very interested in documenting the LGBTIQ history of Sydney, particularly through the recording of oral history interviews. So we have been doing this for some time and have some really wonderful uh, community activists that have um, sort of self-trained, self-taught and gone out and collected interviews. And a few years ago, we were actually able to celebrate um, 100 Voices, which was when we reached 100 LGBTIQ um, interviews that stretch back really to, you know, the 1950s, the 1960s. And we're building on areas that we sort of see that there are still some gaps that we'd love to fill. Well, what are they? You've got the airwaves. Uh, Well, particularly I think that we would be keen to include more voices from uh, particularly um, trans and gender diverse people, uh, members of the intersex community and uh, Indigenous people and multicultural voices. Because the interviewing sort of started with, I guess, a priority of recording people who perhaps were not going to be, you know, here for, here for, for a long time. A lot of our material dates back to those early years in Sydney. So we're sort of slowly moving up. We're, we're sort of got a growing collection about HIV and AIDS, but certainly movements beyond that are also something that we'd like to build on. And where is this located? Uh, Well, physically, we are based in Glebe. So thanks to the City of Sydney, we have uh, an office space and we have uh, meetings which are on the third Monday of every month. Um, If you're interested, you can look at www.camp.org.au, which will tell you uh, what we're up to and our events and really gives you a bit of an idea of what we do. So, you know, the oral history component, obviously, and then we, we also do events. So recently we did an event, obviously, with your with your centre, which was a wonderful event. And we love those collaborations and, and sort of those, those chances to sort of talk publicly about the research and the history of Sydney's uh, LGBTIQ community. And 
other archives of you know so the holdings of these oral histories are they open to the public or like what do you do with them do you deposit them in the national library like so we keep them uh sort of digitally ourselves but we do make them accessible uh based on the conditions that the interviewees uh impose on them so we do get a lot of students who um are now starting to use them which is really great so we sort of indexed a lot of them and the, the themes uh online particularly i think with the 40th anniversary of mardi gras there's been a growing interest from media in terms of maybe voices that have been lost. They can actually go back and listen to that. So, you know, for example, with movies like Riot being produced, being able to hear the voices of people perhaps that you might not be able to in other ways is a really exciting thing. So you sort of get in touch with us and um, we'll let you come and have a bit of a listen. And um, I think that's really important to make it accessible. Brilliant. And look, one of the ways I discovered at that event we did for the City of Sydney at King's Cross Library was that you have launched an amazing walking app with the City of Sydney, which has some of the voices on it, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And we're that, they're really excited about that collaboration. And that's sort of, I guess, sh- pointing us to a way that we can use some of our oral histories in a new and interesting direction. So we've also started to do podcasting uh Pride Pod, which is... Oh, brilliant. Uh, yeah, so Scott McKinnon is leading that, which is where, wonderful. Where, where can people find that? Uh, I think if you go to our website, you can find a little link, and I believe it goes through SoundCloud, so that's kind of exciting. Great name. It is, yeah. Um, <laughs> Pride Pod. So that's one one way that we're doing it. But the other that you mentioned, which is really great, is to have the City of Sydney support us and work with us on an app, which is available in time for Mardi Gras, where people can sort of self-direct and walk down Oxford Street and, you know, go past Taylor Square and hear all the interesting stories and memories and voices from from that sort of that space. I mean, Scott, you download it from the City of Sydney website, don't you, the app? Yes, that's yeah. right. I think you can get it from the Apple Store and possibly from Android stores. Um, all the media. Yeah, that's right. All the media. We're but... across platforms. <laughs> <laughs> so Scott was showing it, me, showing it to me the other day. And um, it's also got photographs of what places looked like. So you kind of walk down, you know, to Taylor Square and you've got both people talking but also pictures of what... And Oxford Street has changed quite a bit in the last 40 years. Like, yeah, and I, th- I think that's really interesting that you kind of have these three things going on and how you'd process that. So you've got the 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 audio sort of element where you're hearing a story and then you've got a picture on the screen that shows you what it looked like then and then you're physically standing there in the present absorbing, you know, what it looks like at this particular moment and, you know... Um, enormous change from that when it was the golden mile I mean obviously it still has a lot of gay bars and pubs but when you hear people describing and talking about what it was like perhaps in 1981 you know there's certainly been significant evolution and change yeah and and it's that element of the city the role that the city played in some of the early activism is is really something we've lost I think because so much has moved online you know the way way you meet people the kind of way you know the role of the police even like it, it seems hard for us I think to get there and imagine what that was like to be penned in you know <laughs> at, in 1978. Yeah it's it's a funny thing that you say that and I guess I just remember personally coming from Brisbane and it must have been kind of early 90s maybe and actually still Oxford Street did have that very vibrant gay presence and it was still something like I had not imagined in um, and I'm sure it was kind of people who'd seen it in the 80s were thinking oh it's you know it's all over now but for me coming from Brisbane and Seeing this very visible rainbow flags um, geographic space was really exciting. And also, like, men walking up and down the street. I mean, that was how you picked up as well. That was, you know, a space of 
sociability around sex and relationships and all sorts of stuff in a way that he doesn't feel tangible quite in that same way as anymore. I don't know, listening to those those voices, it was pal- it's palpable. Mm. Sex on the street. <laughs> yeah, so is this sort of that change of, um, you know, will, will gay identity and culture change or has it already changed because we don't uh, meet people in the same ways perhaps that we once did where you'd have to walk into this particular space or go to a beach or do something like that. Whereas you can probably live a queer life by, you know, just opening up your phone and opening Grindr or apps like that. So mm. it's, it is this really interesting transitional space that we're in. So you have looked to the past in another way, which is with your new Serving in Silence project. Well, it's not new. You've been doing it for a while. But tell me about that. Um, well, I think that that's, that project is a, is a great one. So it's a collaboration with two other researchers, um, Noah Reisman and Graham Willett. And when we think, I guess, in Australia of the military, um, they're certainly you know, very dominated by the idea of the Anzac legend and who the, that Anzac is. Obviously, women have been very left out, Indigenous people have been very left out, and certainly LGBTIQ people have been left out. And there's, there's intersections that do cut across that. So what we're particularly interested in looking at is the way that LGBTIQ I people have been involved in the Australian military since 1945 to now. So it wasn't until 1992 that uh, open gay and lesbian service was allowed, but we've certainly found that there's a very rich history of gay and lesbian people serving before then. And And transgender people were admitted? It was another 18 years after that. So there was certainly a a big lag there and some very difficult battles for people to win that right to serve. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really interesting to see those battles play out internationally. Um, Of course, and we can look at the Australian example and say, what an asset. Particularly for people who are transitioning, you know, the military invests an enormous amount of money into training people. And just because they're transitioning, you know, they still have the same skill set. If anything, they're able to live as their authentic self, yet they would be denied the opportunity to contribute in that capacity. And I hope that the Australian experience can serve as a model for the US and perhaps other countries. So the project is sort of telling a story of all the people that were in the military, even under these sorts of conditions. Yeah, that's right. So um, and it, it, I guess it's, it's, it's interesting sort of trying to um, find the differences between men and women. Uh, in some ways, women are harder to find, certainly through the, the archival records because of the way that they were discharged. So well, when were me- women allowed to serve? So uh, 1992 as, uh, as, as well. And it's, it's, I think it was harder for people who... Well, it's hard to say. I think everyone who was discharged because of their sexuality suffered. But in the people that I've interviewed, the people who were discharged closer to 92 certainly are still carrying around, I think, a lot of emotion with regard to that. But because women, you know, they're not really committing a crime, the military had to sort of define it a bit differently, whereas um, at least for a significant proportion of the period that we're looking at, it was a crime, you know, to be gay in parts of Australia. So that's fascinating. How did the military exclude lesbian women or gay women when it it was not considered a crime? Well, they would argue that it would be bad for morale and that it could influence other young, vulnerable women um, <laughs> and that essentially that it, it, would, uh, it was just not in the interests of, of, the, of the, the military to have women uh, attracted to other women serving together. So, so when did, were women allowed to serve in the Australian military? Well, in terms of the roles that they could take on, so, you know, women have, uh, and certainly in World War II, there were separate branches of, of 
the forces that they could participate in, for example, like the Women's Land Army, who played a really important role in World War Two. Then uh, around 1951, you have the RAC, which is uh, um, the, an organisation I've focused a lot on, which is basically the army. Um, and that that's a separate se- segregated service. So they don't, they don't sort of merge together as a regular army until we're getting sort of to the later part of the 80s. Right. So yeah. actually women are integrated into the, you know, armed services proper. Yeah. Very soon before 1992. Yes, there's not a huge sort of um, overlap there. It's pretty close together. So were those questions about women disrupting morale at play in that late 80s anyway? I I think it's a really interesting question because I think what is really fascinating about looking at the women who served, um, uh, LGB um, and, and Q women who served, is that they had to transcend both sexism as well as particularly in the 80s when they're you know, doing training platoons and doing things in the the regular army. So they have to transcend sexism. And and I I spoke to one woman who actually trained eight platoons and really did an outstanding job. This is, she's actually photographed doing all these amazing things. Incredible, incredible soldier. So she could get past the sexism by working extremely hard and having a real talent, but it was the homosexuality that she just could not get past. Mm. So she could negotiate one but not the not the other. Mm-mm-mm. And so, have you focused particularly on on interviewing women? I've done probably uh, I'd say probably about eighty percent of my interviews have been with women. So a few with men, but largely on women. And certainly, the women that I, I've, I've that are probably the hardest to find, but have really um, I mean they've all got incredible stories. But it's it's a real gift to find women who served in the nineteen sixties because you know for them I think the military really did open up a different world where we have a look at gendered expectations for women. And so the women who, who join mm. the military then often are able to do things they never would, would have been able to do mm. in civilian society, then often have those opportunities taken from them once their sexuality is discovered. So how do they describe why they went into the military? Were they identifying as lesbian, gay, gay probably, at the, you know, that was a word at play at the time. When they entered, was that something that happened while they were there? Like, So, for example, one woman um, actually from the 1960s knew about her sexuality at quite a young age and was sent to a psychiatrist and then thrown out of home. So what for her the military offered a means of survival. Mm. It was, you know, you get somewhere to live, all your uh, sort of needs are met. Um, So as soon as she was old enough to enrol, she enrolled and then, of course, found this lesbian subculture. But there are others who who come in there and then they certainly think, hang on, I'm very comfortable in this all-female space. Uh, and then they start to pick up signs that there's a very vibrant subculture when you know where to look. And so what did that subculture look like? Uh, well, uh, it's really interesting talking to people uh, as they sort of try and describe it. So I think that um, you have the situation where people have to be extremely careful. So it's not it's when you when you when you talk to women who are based in places like Melbourne, then even in the 1960s, there's a lot. It's easier to find women to go out and to drink with and to socialise with and to have that sort of you know. Uh, lesbian life with but if you get sent to somewhere you know perhaps in Townsville then you basically are forced to be quite uh, live quite a ostensibly heterosexual life so a lot could depend about where you were based at the time. So what happened when they were kicked out? Well some people so I've met really remarkable people and I think if there was one thing that I think that the Australian Defence Force should learn from this it is that their discriminatory policies resulted in the loss of so much talent and I think that they are recognizing that now and make that there's a real effort to sort of include LGBTI people for example you know there's participation in Mardi Gras and things like that which would have been unimaginable I imagine uh, that's sort of bittersweet for some of those people that suffered exclusion. 
Absolutely, and I think that yeah, to to sort of that that question of how do they how did they feel or what was it like? Um, I think you know devastating at the time for many of them. A lot of them, you know, the military does teach you to accept orders and to not challenge things. So a lot of them sort of say, I wish I you know had protested more. But I mean, even if they had. You know, what was the policy was the policy. And I think that I've also spoken to people who were incredibly talented. One woman actually went on who was discharged, who was one of the great pioneers as a woman in the Australian military in the 1960s, was thrown out. And then she went on to win a Churchill Fellowship in a completely different field as a neuropsychologist and also did really important work on children who've suffered from brain injuries. So, you know, you can see that's the military's loss. Um, Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's not like wider society was necessarily more accepting in the 1960s. No. I think that's a really great point and that's, you know, that question of why did they join and you could just say, well, it's not like anywhere else was any better. So in some ways, yes, you had to keep your sexuality secret. Yes, you had to conceal these things. But as Rebecca Jennings has written, that really matches what civilian society was like and in some ways it gave you uh, abilities and skills that you couldn't gain elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Now, listeners, you are here listening to Glam City on 2SCR 107.3. As you usual if you want to download this show head to 2scr.com or your very favorite podcast app we like all the apps this is a show brought to you by the australian center for public history at uts with help from 2scr and if you are enjoying um these past few episodes we've had a bit of a lgbtqi theme going on in association with mardi gras because of course this year marks the 40th anniversary of the first mardi gras you can listen back to our previous episodes we had uh, peter mcneil talking about macaroni men and queer fashion we had Robin Kennedy talking about the early activism around 1978, June 1978. And here today, we've got Charlene Robinson, who is historian and president of the Pride History Group. And we've been talking about her uh, project, which is called Serving in Silence, the members of the LGBTI uh, military community. And we have failed so far to mention that there is an art show associated with this. Yeah, so that's that's really an exciting outcome, and uh, it's been to Melbourne so far. So we've had the exhibition um, "Serving in Silence," which opens on the twenty seventh of February, uh, so from twelve o'clock at Tap Gallery in Surrey Hills, and it will run through till the fourth of March. And you know, that's it's a really, I think, interesting way to look at that history laid out in panels and with objects, personal stories, and to really get a sense of what it was like for people. some change over time and perhaps that you know through some personal objects you know a sense of loss and also we've got letters and medals and things like that so there's there's a lot to take in so if you are able to check it out then um, please do. Do you have some photographs in there? We do. So we've got a projector that uh, will show sort of images of people while they were serving as well. And, and, you know, photos of people doing various things. So, you know, women in the 1960s. I don't want to spoil the exhibition, but one of the really interesting stories that I came across was of uh, a couple who served in the the Air Force, the women's branch of the Air Force in the 1960s. And they um, met each other. The relationship got quite serious quite quickly. And they made the decision to disclose their sexuality. Yes, so they were. Typical lesbians. They made the decision to disclose their relationship to their superiors and, of course, had to leave. But they are still together now, so 50 years later. So they came to... There's a photo of them when they were serving and they came to the exhibition in Melbourne and that was a really beautiful moment. Oh, how amazing. So they would be, what, in their 60s or 70s? Yes, I I think they they wouldn't mind me saying they would probably be getting around that. So, yeah. And, and yeah, I just think that that they they knew that if they wanted to be together, they had to leave and they did and clearly that was the right call for them. Yeah. 
yeah. So what does this do to the Anzac legend, which we hear so much about? Kind of boring. Historians, you know, argue about all the time how crap it is. What does this history do? Well, it's quite interesting because I wrote an article um, on the, about 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 how the, the you know this might expand our concept of the Anzac legend by including voices and people that haven't been recognised. And I, I think it's really important to recognise the LGBT people, I people who have served. But I wrote an article for the Conversation on this topic, which they published on Anzac Day, and I don't think I've ever written anything that's gotten so much feedback. Um, <laughs> by feedback, people. you mean? <laughs> <laughs> So it certainly, I think, it, it perhaps uh, does challenge a very narrow conception of, of what people think of when they think of the military. We certainly know that there have always been LGBT uh, IQ people who have served in the Australian military. They've done so with distinction, just like Indigenous people. So I think it shows, again, that concept of who who has served is a very narrow one that does definitely need to be challenged. So, like, on one level... I mean, it strikes me, and I, I read your article, which was fabulous, but it doesn't seem necessarily to disrupt the Anzac legend to me at all. Like, you know, the, as this notion that there is, that the nation is founded in these great military acts, you know, first in the First World War and then in the Second World War, only seems to be strengthened by a kind of sense that that nation, you know, those that were serving were, were a bit more broad than we had previously thought. It doesn't sort of disrupt or, you know, contest that essential argument, which is that the nation is attached to these, you know, the foundation nation is attached to these military acts. And that's what historians have taken issue with, really, Mm. is that there's a lot going on before and after 1915. (laughs) Exactly. And uh, yeah, I think that um, even if you if you have a look at who who goes to Gallipoli and how how narrow and sort of inaccurate that is, even if people have gone through and analysed the height of those people that, you know, charged onto the beaches and things like that and found, you know, no, they weren't all six foot giants. Average height was something like five foot four and all this other stuff. So even if you have a look at that, that's that in itself, that very narrow idea of of, of the Australian military is incorrect in terms of um, um, the popular conceptions, also the fact that people, you know, a much larger contingent of British-born people than is recognised. We think they were all born in Australia mm. but and so on. Um, so, yes, I think that there's... I totally agree that broadening it out, it benefits all of us and uh, is certainly much more inclusive and, and it's much more accurate. The other project you've got going on is about volunteers and HIV. And before we get to that proper, what... How do these intersect in any way? Like, what's the history of HIV in the army that's or inter- the military? That's an interesting question. So I think that that's something that they've, they've sort of contended with. And we noticed that there is probably more attention on male gay witch hunts, certainly during the mid-1980s. And I would certainly link that up to concerns around the stigma of HIV and AIDS. So the, the, the military, I think, does respond in that way at that particular time. In terms of a link, I came to the HIV and AIDS project earlier. I came to that in Queensland, really. So the Queensland AIDS Council, were they've been around for a very long time. And when I was living in Queensland, they asked if I'd be willing to help them write their 25-year history. And the history of the Queensland AIDS Council is unlike the AIDS Council of any other part of Australia because Joe Bjorki-Peterson was the Premier and he would not distribute federal funds to the Queensland AIDS Council. So they had this really unique situation. So that was fascinating to me. And I understood that volunteers were critical uh, in the response up there. Also nuns, which is an an interesting element I could if I had all the time in the world. So the Queensland experience showed me that volunteers were really important. We know that Australia's response was probably one of the best in the Western world in terms of 
mitigating the the impact of what could have been a devastating epidemic. But volunteers were a critical but under-acknowledged part of that response. So where were they, what communities were those volunteers coming from? What mobilised them? Well, I think this is another really interesting thing and, and hopefully, well, again, uh, you know, in Australia we venerate and we love our volunteers and we think about lifesavers, we think about volunteers. Yes, <laughs> I was just trying to think, what are they, what are they the ones that Tony Abbott is, uh, is a member of? Um, but, you know, so they, they, they certainly hold a lot of uh, regard in Australian society, yet there's a very narrow conception, I think, of, of who volunteers are. And the volunteers who are involved in the HIV and AIDS epidemic were drawn largely from marginalised communities themselves. So, obviously, gay men were certainly very heavily represented. A lot of men who were living with HIV and AIDS themselves. The lesbian community really came on board in a remarkable way. A lot of them had nursing skills. And Thanks to the military service. Yeah, possibly, very possibly. <laughs> and, you know, uh, also sex workers, injecting drug users, transgender people. So it's a group of people who did remarkable work at a time that this was a very stigmatised issue and have never really properly been credited with that. The role of lesbians in caring for gay men during HIV is a really important one to tell that you're right it doesn't get we don't hear that why do you think we've we don't hear that uh, it's an interesting one and I, I guess there's there's probably a lot of elements to the response to HIV and AIDS that, I, that do need to be explored still we sort of think that we know what happened in Australia because the public policy response is really well understood that the government worked with affected communities and uh, empowered them, unlike, say, America, where Ronald Reagan didn't even mention AIDS until it had killed more people than had been killed in the Vietnam War. We, I think we think that we know the, the story of HIV and AIDS, and that means that certain groups have been left out of that, that story. And and certainly, um, you know, women from the lesbian community played a pivotal and crucial role, and it's been great to include their voices. And, you know, this is not that long after there had been some divisions and tensions within the uh, gay and le- lesbian community uh, over sexism issues like that from some quarters, but still a remarkable contribution. Yeah, and I mean, I guess so much is in the wake of the HIV crisis, I get, you know, you could see that the 1992 overturning of the ban of LGBTQI people in the military is a response to HIV, but the community in some ways is, has split. You know, I mean, lesbians and gays are still friends and they still work with each other, but that sort of collaborative work of the HIV era. We don't see that in the same way. And I wonder if our, you know, our understanding of that period is filtered through how we live now. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. And, and uh, you know, sort of the obviously just recently going through the marriage equality campaign. And I guess that might be one example of how people really did pull together in quite a remarkable way, a really disparate group of people and how we maintain the links that were built during that period and whether they can be maintained. But you did see a lot of cooperation from uh, a lot of groups that perhaps, you know, I mean, lesbians have to and, 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 and bisexual women, queer women have to deal with things like sexism, um, inequality and in pay, those sort of issues as well. And gay men have um, concerns as well that are different. So we are all quite, a, we're a diverse community, but at times of great importance, there has been a recent history, I think, of working together. And whether that will continue, I think, is something that we need to hopefully pull on and address. Work hard. Yes. Now we're coming to the end of the show and at the end of the show we have this segment called Glam Slam where we look into our diaries and see what's coming up in a kind of cultural history type way. What what have you got on? I bet Mardi Gras is like taking up 
large chunks. <laughs> yes, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a huge amount of things happening um, uh, sort of related to Mardi Gras. The 78ers have had one talk already. I think that there's a um, an event that focuses on uh, trans stories, which I think is really great. So we're, we're starting to see much more inclusion around that. Queer thinking is something that is always really uh, a great sort of thing to get involved in as well. What's queer thinking? Queer thinking is sort of a, a panel that um, there's an, I think there's an activist forum. There's a lot of focus on activism, uh, I guess, kind of makes sense this year. So, you know, different people from across generations talking about activism. So that's something that I think will be quite interesting as well. And all those events are in the Mardi Gras calendar, which is online. Yeah, yep. exactly. So you can spend a lot of time going through and I promise you that there'll be something on every day through till, um, you know, at least the 4th of March <laughs> yeah. when my well, our exhibition ends. <laughs> and what I will be doing on the 1st of March is hanging out at Glam Slam and tickets have sold out. I mean, it's going to be such a great event, but we'll be live tweeting. Um, this is an event for those working in and with galleries, libraries, archives and museums across Sydney and UTS is hosting it this year. We've got fantastic keynotes. We're going to have a radio show that comes out of it here on Glam City. So there's lots of ways to participate um, and I'm sure you'll be bored of my voice by then. But that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you very much for joining us once again. If you want to hear more from us, go to 2SER website, 2SER.com and look through the back catalogue or go to the podcast app and download us. You can also hit us up on Twitter. You can find me at Cap and gown and Anna who is absent at Anna Hope Clark we hope she will return soon this podcast is brought to you by the Australian Centre for Public History oh, to SER 107.3 thank you everyone glam out thank you Shalene.